1: You know, really, it's amazing that in a day when healthcare professionals and hospitals really tell all of us that we should be breastfeeding, and yet there's a really strange paradox. Because it's the common hospital birth practices that can really breast, uh, sabotage breastfeeding. Those things are kind of lurking in all of the hospital corners and certainly in the labor room corners. And so today, I'd like you to look at practices such as labor induction, epidural anesthesia and analgesia, cesarean deliveries, routine newborn assessments, and more of those things that most of us just kind of accept as, oh, normal, we do this all the time. Then there are the practices that, you know, seem really harmless enough, things like a liberal visitor policy or bathing the baby within a few hours after birth, but these also can affect breastfeeding outcomes and breastfeeding success. And there must be a little tiny part of you saying to yourself, Marie, how are you going to talk about all of these 10 things in one show? And the answer is, I'm not going to go into them in great detail, all right? But I want you to stay with me here because... I have helped literally hundreds of women to labor and give birth, and so I'm going to sort of take off my breastfeeding expert hat today, and I'm going to put on my labor and delivery expert hat so that I can clue you in about how these common birth practices can also affect breastfeeding, and what the experts are saying, and also what you can do to minimize that impact on your breastfeeding experience. So, let me start with one that you might not have really thought about too much, and that is a non-quiet, non-secluded place to give birth. Now, if you live on a farm, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Farm animals will always try to find themselves a secluded spot to give birth, but maybe you just have... Uh, a a cat who is a pet. What have you found out from your cat? They will go in little secluded places. Now, by the way, I don't have a cat, but I've heard people tell me about things like they've gotten themselves under the cabinet of the sink or some really secluded place to give birth. And all of us Need to remember that the cat, the dog, the cow, the whoever it is, all of these animals are mammals. And we humans are mammals as well. And a quiet, secluded place is the place to be. But hospitals are not at all like that, okay? I can distinctly remember one time I was precepting a graduate student. And there were 11 people in the delivery room, and I started to kind of walk away. And she said, where are you going? And I said, I'll watch through the window. There are 11 people in here. That's way too many people. You see where I'm going with this. It's very hard for the mother to concentrate, and it is not a good setup, if you will. It makes it seem as if the hospital, or at least the doctor, is in charge of the birth rather than the mother herself. The noise, the noxious stimuli are anything except peaceful or welcoming or physiologic for the new baby. And by the way, I might add that another clunker here sometimes is that there's a boatload of visitors that will come in. And I don't mean just the baby's father, the mother's partner, whoever. No, no, no. I mean a whole flock of people. And very often what happens with that is that the baby doesn't have the opportunity to get skin-to-skin, doesn't have the opportunity to breastfeed, because the parents feel obligated to have the breastfeed. Huh? So parents and staff should understand that anything that interferes with delays or uh, will will abbreviate that breastfeeding experience, and that is counterproductive. Now, along with this, I want to add what the American Academy of Pediatrics has said, and this goes back to 1997. We're talking here, looking about almost 20 years ago, they said that excessive noise is a hazard for newborns, and yet, in most delivery suites, what do we have? We have excessive noise, we have bright lights, we have other noxious stimuli, this is not a peaceful, welcoming environment so that the baby can concentrate on what he should be doing, which is breastfeeding. All right, let me move then to a lack of effective emotional and social support. This is the second thing that you need to be looking at. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again because it's so important. I mentioned this in the uh, uh, show that I did some time ago with Teresa Bailey, Teresa who was a doula, and we, we talked about this importance of effective emotional and social support. I'd like to address two studies that were really classic studies, and they were excellent. And that is one by Hofmeyer and another one by Kennel. And uh, in the one by Hoffmeyer and colleagues, They found that the group that had supportive companionship during labor was less likely to use analgesia. They reported having less pain and they had less anxiety. And some of those mothers who had supportive companions in labor, and by the way, these were just volunteers, okay? The mothers were significantly more likely to be breastfeeding at six weeks. Now... Kennel and colleagues, and I'm pretty sure that it was Kennel and Klaus and colleagues, had a group of excuse me, 412 women. And the women had continuous doula support. And what they found in this study was a reduced risk of caverian, that is 8 versus 18%. A reduction in forceps delivery, reduction in epidural anesthesia, For the vaginal births, by the way, that was 7% versus 55%. That's a big difference in those two groups. Less use of oxytocin, less uh, duration of labor, less likelihood of a prolonged infant hospitalization. Do you see where I'm going with all of this? This is so, so important. This was a classic study. I'd have to look, but I think it was in 1991. And by the way, that study is still... Over and over looked at. Now, let me give you the one that uh, was by Kennel and colleagues. Or excuse me, that was Kennel. But uh, the later studies, and there have been a number of them that have been done just in the last couple of years, have showed, for instance, lower perception of pain, lower incidence of cesarean, just like the classic studies, lower incidence of assisted deliveries, just like the classic studies, Shorter labors, which by the way, the classic studies actually didn't show that at all so well. Uh, less use of epidural or other medication and a greater satisfaction with the birth experience. And what do the experts say here? Well, no surprise, both the American Ecology of, of obstetrician and gynecologist as well as the Society for Maternal Fetal and, uh, Maternal Fetal Medicine to barely get that one out there. Uh, they actually issued a joint statement or a joint report in 2014 called Safe Prevention of Primary Caesarean Delivery. And by the way, if you don't have that, you should get that. And what they recommended here was, guess what, continuous support during labor as a way to reduce the primary caesarean delivery rate. So what can you do for yourself? This is so simple, folks. You need to be looking at how are you going to get support during labor? And I know that in my show with Teresa Bailey, uh, uh, who is a doula, we talked about the fact that a partner is not trained. They've never done this before. And what's more is I will tell you from having worked with couples, a lot of times what happens is the partner conks out at 2 (laughs) a.m. I worked a lot of nights, so I feel like I'm pretty credible on this issue. You really want someone who is going to be there supporting you in a knowledgeable way and somebody who is being paid to stay awake when things get rugged, all right? The next one I want to talk about is routine delivery, uh, routine newborn prophylaxis. And I don't know if I'll get a chance to tell you the whole thing before we go to the break, but if not, we'll go to break and I will tell you a little bit more. And that is, first of all, what's newborn prophylaxis? Well, you know, kind of a crude way to say that is eyes and thighs. This is when they put ointment, maybe drops, but in my experience, usually it's ointment, into the baby's eyes as well as give a shot of vitamin K. Now, you need to understand why they're doing this to your baby. And then you need to know the law in your state. In some states, the parents have a right to refuse eye treatment, but not in all states. And you need to be really... I'm talking about if you live in the U.S. If you live outside the U.S., I truly don't know. But uh, I will that if you refuse to have the eye treatment for the baby, you may find that uh, the hospital authorities might, 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 not always, but in some states might be calling the Child Protective Services. So you really need to know what is required in your state. But interestingly enough, current evidence really questions the need for the eye ointment. Now, certainly originally, it was done to prevent the baby from having uh, an eye uh, problem, and that was usually from gonorrhea or from chlamydia. But as you probably know, in every state that I'm aware of, kids get this routinely, whether their mother or their father or anybody else has chlamydia or of so, you should know what your rights are, and I'm not suggesting that you don't do this, so don't misquote me here. I'm saying you need to know what your rights are. You need to talk with your doctor, not me. I'm just giving you information. This is not advice. The advice is talk to your doctor, know your rights. You should also know that automatic administration of erythromycin is no longer used in the United Kingdom, it's no longer used in Australia. It's no longer used in Norway. And that has been the case, and I think Sweden, uh, and that has been the case since at least 2010, maybe earlier. So I really want you to understand here that there is a need for the eye medicine if the baby has a problem, but it can also be given later if the baby does have a problem. And at the very, very least, You should ask for the eye ointment to be delayed. As far as I know, delay is permissible in all states in the union. Again, you need to check your own state. You need to talk with your doctor. You need to have this conversation sooner rather than later. All right. When we come back, I'll be talking about vitamin K. Don't go away. I'm Marie Biancuso. We'll be right back after this short break.
2: We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. New Angel manufactures environmentally friendly and hypoallergenic cotton products for breastfeeding mothers and their New Angels. Feel the difference. Soft, absorbent, and breathable. Patented, patent-pending, and award-winning products designed by a certified lactation consultant. Look for New Angel biodegradable, disposable, and cotton washable nursing pads, natural cotton products, and other unique items. Made by mothers for mothers in the USA. By N U A N G E L for your new angel at www.newangel.com and www.amazon.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuzo or her guest on today's program, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuzo. Thank you so much for joining me as I'm talking today about practices in the labor and delivery and immediate postpartum phase to be avoided. And so I was just talking about vitamin K and now I want to talk about, or excuse me, I was talking about um, the eye ointment and now I want to talk about vitamin K. All right. So here's what I think. I think there is reasonably decent evidence to support the idea of giving vitamin K to newborns. So, I I want you to know, if this was my kid, I would be saying, yes, vitamin K is necessary to prevent uh, postpartum hemorrhage. What I question, though, is whether or not the shot is necessary. But here in the United States, that is the only thing that we have. So I guess I want to alert you that in Europe, they have been giving the oral preparation, as far as I know, for years. But... Here in the U.S., we don't have that available. So if you're listening to this while I'm giving the recording, and if you're going to deliver tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., you need to realize that you're probably out of luck with getting an alternative. If you're listening to this as a podcast a year or two or 10 years later, well, then uh, what I'm saying might not be the case. But in any event, with both the eye ointment and with the vitamin K, I want to repeat that one of the things you need to do is see if you can have this delayed. Now, in most places that I'm aware of, you can delay at least an hour, usually two hours. So, again, you need to be aware. Discuss this with your pediatrician long before the birth happens. Get yourself informed. And by the way, forever, whatever you do, please don't ask your friends for, you can ask your friends, but don't ask your friends for the bottom line, because often what I find is that friends don't always know the bottom line. Hopefully, the physician does. Uh, I want to throw in here another thing, which is the radiant warmer. Usually, what I will see is that the baby will be put under the radiant warmer, in order to be given the eye ointment and the vitamin K, and all of the other, you know, take the baby's heart rate and so forth, but uh, the the radiant warmer is not necessary. And as the mother, one of the things that you can do is request that the baby get anything done to him, whatever it is. Get that done while he is actually with you, maybe lying on your abdomen. Alrighty, for example. Taking the baby's heart rate is an important thing to do, but I can do that when the baby is with the mother just as easily as I can do that when he's over on the radiant warmer. So again, this is one of the things that you can ask for that can be honored, and it's really not all that big of a deal. At least I don't think it's all that much of a deal. So what about the other thing that really bugs the living daylights out of me would be stimulation or suctioning or routine uh, invasive procedures. Let's put it that way. Now, the thing you need to be aware of is that most of these things are not routinely necessary. Are there babies that need to be stimulated? Yes. Are there babies that need to be suctioned? Yes. Are there babies that have high secretions? Yes. Are there babies that do need to have their blood sugars tested? Yes. But does your baby need that? I don't know. And that's what I'm trying to wise you up to here, is really make sure that you understand what is given routinely and what needs to be given to your baby. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP, said so many years ago that I can't even remember when it was. I think it was 1992 or maybe 1993. And they clearly said in their statement that stimulation or suctioning of newborn secretions is not necessary on a routine basis. So again, I repeat, do some babies need it? Yes, perhaps. Do all babies need it? No. Is there a time and a place for it? Yes. What about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine? They say that routine testing of blood sugar is not necessary now, certainly they, as well as other authorities, would say that babies who are at high risk for blood sugar uh, nests, whatever that word would be, all right, if they are unstable, that is, if you are a diabetic, yes, absolutely, I would be testing that baby, but unless the baby has a high risk, he should not be routinely given these invasive procedures. Okay, and I could talk way more about this, but anyway. uh, What about uh, oxytocin induction? What is an induction? Well, it is the giving of a synthetic form of oxytocin, and it is given either to induce the mother, that is, she's not having any labor whatsoever, and so we're going to bring on the labor, or she's having a labor but she's not having good contractions and so we want to speed things along. I feel a little silly saying we because I certainly was never watching to be part of that, but it does happen, okay? So I think it's really important that you understand that... Uh, This is not necessarily a good thing, and they've recently started doing some work on this as related to breastfeeding outcomes. So I think that you should have this conversation with your doctor before you're anywhere close to term, and then if he comes in and suggests the um, induction or the augmentation, you need to have a good conversation. It's up to you whether or not you consent to have labor-induced. So refusal might be one of those things that you might want to entertain. Now, this gets a little bit dicey, and I'll tell you why, because I think that sometimes mothers feel as though they just have to say, yes, 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 and that's not true. They do have a choice. There are clearly times when the benefits outweigh the risks. There are other times when the risks outweigh the benefits. So make sure that you understand what those would be. All right. I would also say look at what you can do to reduce your chances of, for instance, an augmentation. That's the big one that I would be looking at. Very often when women are just in uh they're in a lying down position, they don't have a good contraction. It would be much better if you would be able to get up move around, walk around, those are the kinds of things that may indeed be able to get you with the better labor without having the synthetic hormone. All right, so what about medicated deliveries? Oh, brother, I could just talk about this forever and ever and ever, but, uh, oh, so, excuse me, but back to the, the labor induction or augmentation, I started to say they're just starting to do some work on this. But what they have found, actually, is that this practice has been associated with lower initiation and lower duration of breastfeeding. I don't know that there's a good explanation for this, and I think they're going to have to do a lot more work. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is it just because people that have been induced or augmented have got higher levels of pain? And so by the time the baby gets there, they're just kind of done in? I don't know but lower initiation and lower duration of breastfeeding has been associated with the uh, induction and augmentation. Notice I said associated with, I did not say cause, okay? So it'd be really, really clear where people are talking to you about this stuff. All right, so very often what happens also with the uh, uh induction or augmentation is that people had a lot of pain. So... You can imagine that when you have a lot of pain, then you end up having pain medicine. Certainly, the classic study here was with Dr. Leonard Regard, and I had the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to teach with Dr. Leonard Regard uh, some years ago, quite a a ways uh, back now, but I'm thinking we taught five different cities together, and what he basically showed in his classic study was that there is, less interest, if you will, the baby is less likely to crawl up to the breast, less likely to be able to breastfeed well when mothers have been over medicated or should I say medicated. Uh, I would love to tell you that this is a truism all the time, but that's, that's not the case. I really believe that someday the research will show that there is a a clearer link, but right now I think that link is a little flaky. So let's look at meaning. the The research is kind of mixed. In the meanwhile, let's look at what we have learned from uh, the experts. The Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine says, and I quote: "Unmedicated, spontaneous vaginal birth with immediate, uninterrupted skin-to-skin contact." leads to the highest likelihood of baby-led breastfeeding initiation. And then in another place, they say both pain and opioid analgesia, that means the big gun drugs, okay, have a negative impact on breastfeeding outcomes. Thus, mothers should be encouraged to control their pain with the lowest medication dose that is fully effective. Okay. Okay. And so how are you going to get lower pain levels? You're going to hire your doula. You're going to have good, or maybe you don't have to uh, pay a doula. Maybe you have somebody who is trained, maybe a friend uh, who can be there. That has been related to lower use of medication during labor. I'm Malibian Cuso. When we come back, we're going to talk about caesarean delivery. So don't go away. We'll be right back.
2: Opinions, options, answers.
0: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The New Pocket is a newborn carrier specifically designed for skin-to-skin contact, affording mom full coverage and hands-free mobility while giving and receiving all the physiological benefits of Kangaroo Care. Our unique fabric is super soft, breathable, moisture-wicking, and it offers just the right amount of compression fit to ensure proper position and continued support. Hospitals and NICUs are implementing the new Roo pocket for inpatient use to increase time spent skin-to-skin, as well as help improve breastfeeding scores and infant safety. Learn more at com. That's n u r o o baby.com.
2: We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuzo or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's one You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Bancuto. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, as you can imagine, I was talking in the last section about how uh, epidural anesthesia might possibly figure into a less than perfect breastfeeding experience. Again, the literature is very mixed. It's very uncertain exactly what uh, the effect that breastfeeding is. And by the way, just FYI, I have certainly seen cases where mothers have had epidural anesthesia. They do fine. Others that, yeah, they don't do so fine. So I, even my, my experience of watching women and their babies has been mixed. So of course, the research is mixed, and we've got a lot of uncertainty there. But uh, this kind of goes along with cesarean delivery. Why so? Because sometimes what you've got is you've had an induction, you've got a lot of pain, so then you had a lot of meds on board, or a, a lot of pain on board, so you get the the uh, medication on board. Then if you have a, a lack of sensation, you often don't push well, and so you may end up with a cesarean delivery. Not always, but certainly that's a possibility. Now, I know that I did one whole show talking about the effects of cesarean on breastfeeding, and so I'm not going to go that deep today. But I do want to tell you that I'm not one of those who say, oh, you know, the end of the world, you're going to be in such bad shape and you're going to end up with a cesarean and life is going to be bad. I'm not going to tell you that, okay? But I'm going to tell you that 32% Of the women who give birth in the United States, 32% are giving birth by cesarean. That's one in three. And if you live, by the way, in a place like Alabama, it's even worse, uh, about 40%. So I guess what I want to say here is you need to be prepared to ask the questions about what happens with breastfeeding if you have a cesarean. In my experience, the breastfeeding thing kind of depends on why the mother had the cesarean in the first place. Is it that she didn't labor at all, and so therefore she doesn't have the hormones of labor, and so therefore if she doesn't have the hormones of labor, she doesn't have a setup for the hormones of breastfeeding. Will she be able to breastfeed? Absolutely. Uh, it may be that the mother has had a serious illness or an injury or a complication or something, so therefore she had the uh, cesarean. If so, it's really not fair to blame the cesarean for all of her woes at breastfeeding. It's just she's got a lot of other stuff going on. Uh, how about the baby is premature or otherwise compromised? Then you see where I'm going with that. I'm going to tell you it's not really the cesarean, it's that there are these other things that make breastfeeding not exactly an ideal situation. It may be that the mother had her caesarean because she was unable to deliver the baby because he's so large, and which, by the way, those babies usually come out ready to eat their weedies. So I guess what I'm saying here is don't always blame the caesarean itself, but rather understand that there are a lot of factors that play into this. Now, what about the effect on milk supply? As you know, and I do want to suggest that you take a look at that show that I did some time ago, a long time ago, actually, on breastfeeding and cesareans. uh milk may not become as abundant as soon as with a vaginal birth. But I would also say the studies are kind of variable on this in part because there are so many variables to the situation itself, the kinds of things that we just talked about. I would also say that the real key here is the baby needs to get to the breast early and often, early and often, early and often, okay? And if so, then, yeah, you might be a little bit behind on your milk supply for a day or two, but research shows that if you can, regardless of uh, whether or not you labored, by the end of the week, if you get the baby to breast early enough then you're going to have just as much milk as the mother who delivered vaginally. Now, I still want to tell you there are all of these other factors that might give you a problem, but the cesarean self, not so much so. Now, certainly with cesarean, you do have discomfort, you do have fatigue, and by the way, I'm a proponent of the idea that you do have to take some medications to make yourself feel human because if not... You don't want to breastfeed, and that's not a good thing. So, again, have this talk with your doctor. The ways to minimize the impact, you know what I'm going to say early, 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 early and often. Get the baby to breast within 30 minutes of when you are able to respond. Now, if you have had a regional anesthesia, like epidural anesthesia, or if you've had maybe spinal anesthesia, well, then you're ready to respond pretty much instantly because you're fully awake. If you have had a general anesthesia, it's really hard to say. Uh, some people really recover from it uh, fairly quick and easy. Some of them kind of not so much so, and I personally do not want that baby to be left alone with the mother and that's another reason, by the way, why lining up your doula, lining up your sister, lining up whoever, uh, your partner by then may be ready to count out and go to sleep. So make sure that you have somebody lined up who can be there to supervise, if you will, that so that if you're not fully awake, the baby can at least still go to breath. Now, the more that the baby goes to breath, the more he learns how to breastfeed and how to do well with it. A really important thing, and I know I'm not talking about postpartum, but a really important thing here is for rooming in. Rooming in is one of the best things that you can do to improve the initiation and the continuation of breastfeeding. Now, the hospital may tell you that you can't room in right now because you're too groggy. And you know what? That I, I agree with that. I don't want a mother, a groggy mother to be by herself with that baby. But this is another reason why you do have some control over this. You make sure that you line somebody up who is willing to come in at 3 a.m. if that's what it takes. And by the way, that might be the person who is there at 10 o'clock as well. So, so don't expect somebody to come in just like instantly know that these people have been lined up and know that for months and that they agree to be willing and able. So what do the experts and authorities say here? Well, the World Health Organization says that the baby should go to breast within 30 minutes of when she, when the mother is able to respond and that the mother should have help if the baby has not latched on within the hour. What does the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine say? Uh, pretty much the same thing. The, their big theme is my big theme, early in often. office. And the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine suggests regional anesthesia, that is spinal or epidural, as opposed to general anesthesia. Now, don't let the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecology say. They say, and I quote, if you are planning on breastfeeding, be sure to let your healthcare provider know. Having a cesarean delivery does not mean you will not be able to breastfeed your baby. You should be able to begin breastfeeding right away. And that statement was written in May of 2015 by the ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. I do want to give you just a uh, just a caveat there, though. No, I'm sure that when they say, uh, breastfeed right away. I'm sure that what they really mean is right away when you're actually responding or you have somebody who is responsive. Alrighty, Then I want to talk a little bit about early separation. You know pretty much what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that in a normal full term, low risk delivery, it's hard to justify any reason for separation. If you can stay with your baby you have, are likely to have a longer continuation of breastfeeding, more effective postpartum uterine contractions. The stimulation of the nipples gives the brain the uh, message to make milk. The baby doesn't even necessarily have to transfer any milk to himself, but that stimulation is what's going to do it. Colostrum acts as a laxative on the baby's gut, and so it moves the stool out, which moves the bilirubin out, which makes the baby at less risk for jaundice better regulation of the baby's temperature. The baby's more likely to stay warm when the baby is skin-to-skin. Here's a big one. Decreased crying. The baby is less likely to be crying if he is skin-to-skin with his mother. Assuming effect of that amniotic fluid, so, so important. We're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. And what do the experts and authorities say? Ah, World Health Organization has been saying this for almost 25 years now. Strong, strong recommendations to keep the baby skin to skin and avoid delays in feeding. Now, let me tell you that one of those times that we have a delay in feeding sometimes is because the parent is asking me to go and weigh the baby or measure the baby. I usually tell parents as politely as I know how, that baby is going to weigh the same now Uh, is he's going to wait two hours from now. And it's much more important that he be with the mother skin to skin. So please don't ask the nurse to go weigh the baby. The, The nurse is doing you a big, big favor by delaying that. So bottom line is get the baby skin to skin. Do not bundle them because when they are bundled, what happens is they can't get to breast. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Everybody recommends skin-to-skin contact. Okay, on the other side of the break, we're going to be talking about early, early bathing, and then we're going to wrap it up for today. I'm Marie Bianchuto. So don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Your
2: life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. For a live or online course or inquire about training today, please visit BreastfeedingOutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit BreastfeedingOutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894.
0: You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Bianchuto. I'm your host for Born to Be Breastfed, and today I'm talking about the 10 things that you want to avoid in order to make your breastfeeding experience a better experience during labor, the immediate delivery, and the immediate postpartum period, meaning within the first hour or so which brings me right up to early bathing. All right, this is one of the things that I really hope is not happening in the first hour, although I know that in some places it does. When I was working in the hospital, I was always in trouble because I did not bathe babies early, and I guess people really kind of saw it as me shirking my duty. But in fact, early bathing is not a good thing. It's not a good thing for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is... You know yourself, if you take a bath, what happens to you? You come out and you're cold. That's because you come out of the bath and into the air that's only 72 or whatever it is. All right. For babies, it is, first of all, not very pleasant. Secondly, doesn't help them to maintain their temperature. And babies have rather flaky little thermostats of their own. All right. So we need a way to keep the babies warm. So, When they're not warm, the other thing that happens is usually then they start using up their blood sugar supply in order to keep themselves warm. And so guess what? That puts them at a higher risk for dropping their blood sugar, none of which is good, all right? Now, the other thing is that when you bathe a baby early in the game, what happens is it takes off the amniotic fluid. And actually, amniotic fluid is a good thing. The babies will do more hands-to-mouth behavior, which is what's called a pre-feeding behavior, when they have the amniotic fluid on their fingers or on their fists. But one of the problems that I have found is that it's actually parents who say to me, I don't want that sticky baby on me. Well, actually, all of that sticky is actually a good thing. When you you can you can dry off the baby, all right, and you should, or the nurse should, I mean, but uh, he shouldn't be real goopy, uh, sticky in that sense. But bathing the baby with water is the thing that we've now got some research about, and this was actually. It was a chart review, which makes it, um, you know, it's it's retrospective. It's looking back, which doesn't make it a real strong study. But right now, it is certainly the one that is on everybody's mind. They had uh, 702 babies that were in the study, and they had been bathed at an average of two and a half hours uh, of life, okay? And then what they did was in that hospital, they changed their protocol. They started bathing babies at an average of 13 and a half hours of life, okay? So more than 12 hours is the first time that the baby got a bath. And so what they found really was that when the bath was delayed and the babies were were bathed at that, you know, after 12 hours, so 12, 13, 14, whatever, uh, uh, what they found here was that actually breastfeeding rates increased. And this was really quite amazing. When they were bathing the kids at two or so hours of life, their exclusive breastfeeding rate was 32.7%. And when they started bathing the kids after 12 hours of life, that exclusive breastfeeding rate bumped up to forty point percent and that was significant, statistically significant. So, delaying the bath had odds of exclusive breastfeeding 39% greater than the babies that were bathed earlier, and 59% greater odds of near-exclusive breastfeeding, and by that, they mean that the baby wasn't completely exclusively breastfed, but pretty close, all right? So, the odds uh, of breastfeeding initiation, that is, any breastfeeding, were 166% greater for the babies that had been born after the hospital began delaying the back. So, this is a really, really important thing to realize. And kind of what I want to have you understand here is, yes... Wiping the baby down is one thing, but getting him all wet is quite a different thing, and that should not be done at two hours of life. It really should be delayed, according to this research. All right, so before we go today, I'm going to try to just pull together all of the things I talked about today. I talked about avoiding a non-quiet, non-secluded place to give birth, and instead give birth in a quiet, secluded place. Avoid a lack of effective emotional, social, and support. In other words, have someone who can support you. Avoid the routine prophylaxis or routine assessment. Avoid stimulation, or, or, or if you've got to have the assessments, then have it done with you, not over on the warmer. Avoid stimulation or suckling, uh, suctioning, excuse me, uh, or The invasive procedures, such as testing for blood glucose, unless there is a reason for it. Try to avoid the oxytocin inductions or augmentation. Try to avoid the medicated labors or deliveries. Do everything you can to avoid a cesarean delivery. Try to avoid those early separations or delays in breast feedings, and by all means, don't you be the one asking the nurse to delay the feeding or to separate you. Avoid the tight swaddling or bundling and instead do skin-to-skin contact and avoid the early bathing. So then... In summary, basically what I said was routine anything usually isn't a very good idea. And many of these, quote, routine hospital practices that are voiced to the mothers affect breastfeeding in a negative way. So certainly some of these things are necessary under some circumstances, but very few of them are necessary under most or all circumstances. Certainly there are almost always alternatives to routine hospital practices alternatives or delays or something that can be done, the key here really is to avoid these practices and to get yourself educated before they happen, to be confident, to be supported by a knowledgeable trained companion who can be a strong advocate for you during your labor and during your delivery and make sure that you have a candid talk with your doctor long before any of this stuff happens. That's all the time that we have today. Uh, I would like to thank you for listening to Born to be Breastfed and I'd like to invite you to all come back next week when we're going to be talking about some legal issues. If you're a parent, I'd like to encourage you to visit my parent breast uh, uh, website at borntobebreastfed.com for a preview of what's coming up. And if you're a professional, I'd like to Suggest that you visit my professional site at uh, breastfeedingoutlook.com and remember that I'm your source for evidence based practice and education on the web and sometimes in your city. I will be giving my comprehensive course and my review course in several cities this year. So that's borntobebreastfed.com or breastfeedingoutlook.com if you're a parent or if you're a professional. Try to make sure you're on the right one. If not, there is a link to zap you over to the other one. I'm Marie Bianchuto. I promise I'll help you to cut through the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding next Monday, same time, same channel. In the meanwhile, remember, your baby, who is born to be breastfed. Have a great week.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Cuzo next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.